Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. The seeds of totalitarian regimes are nurtured by misery and want. They spread and grow in the evil soil of poverty and strife. They reach their full growth when the hope of a people for a better life has died. We must keep that hope alive. The free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedoms. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world, and we shall surely endanger the welfare of this nation. And welcome to episode 31 of American History 2. I am Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by an unusually excited as we get to talk about one of his pet interests, Malcolm Craig. Hello, uh, Malcolm. Thank you very much, Mark. I wouldn't say unusually excited. I'm always excited to be recording American History 2. <laughs> yes, and there's slightly less emotion going into this one than the, the bonus podcast we recorded last week. Perhaps, yes. Yeah. So anyway, let's uh, get straight into today's topic. No messing about on this podcast where we're going to look at the, the origins of the CIA, i.e. The, the Central Intelligence Agency's covert operations programs um, that the be- that began from the, from the end of Second World War onwards. Um, so Malcolm, you're the expert on this one, so I'm going to be just hitting you with a barrage of questions. And my first one is quite a simple one. If the CIA wasn't established until 1947, what did the United States do for over 150 years prior to its establishment? Uh, I mean, you know, I know that like even medieval European countries like used to employ covert operations to, to, to assassinate people and such. So I'm guessing that the US didn't just discover the, the concept after the Second World War. No, I mean, there's a, there's a long history of, uh, you know, secret intelligence agencies uh, in the United States from the Revolutionary War onwards. I mean, if you look in the, I mean, during the Revolutionary War and after in the War of 1812, there are kind of people who are employed as spies, you know, informally uh, and all that kind of thing. Uh, as we progress through the, the 19th century, you see the gradual evolution of more formalized American intelligence uh, agencies, communities, organizations. And even on a, a, a private basis, you have things like the, the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which in some ways becomes almost a quasi arm of government as an investigative and intelligence gathering body. And you also have you know, the first kind of formalized private surveillance uh, in America is in the, kind of the, the mid to late 19th century, which is the credit rating agencies. Uh, which come about. But then you start to see, I mean, genuine governmental intelligence agencies that emerge. And the first one of really 
kind of you know major consequence uh, is actually a military intelligence agency called the Office of Naval Intelligence (ONI), uh, which is established in in 1882. Uh, I mean, primarily it's it's working alongside the the modernization and development and expansion of the United States Navy. It's the it's the oldest extant member of the United States intelligence community. So it's if we look at any kind of founding agency for the for US intelligence, it's, it's ONI. But as we pro- progress into the uh, the twentieth century, obviously we see the development of more uh, military uh, intelligence agencies. We see the development of civilian investigation and counterintelligence agencies like the Bureau of Investigation, which becomes the the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI in nineteen thirty five. And one of the almost one of almost one of the forgotten bits about the FBI is that prior to the existence of the CIA, the FBI had responsibility for foreign intelligence gathering in Central and South America. So there was an intelligence component there and you had Signals uh, intelligence uh, capability in World War One and after until it's disestablished in the late 1920s, the so-called American Black Chamber. Uh, so, and then prior, then when we get into uh, World War Two, you have the the OSS, the uh, Office of Strategic Services, which is run by the kind of buccaneering uh, Wild Bill Donovan. Uh, <laughs> and becomes America's premier clandestine agency uh, in the war. And one of the not direct predecessors of the CIA, but a kind of uh, a thematic and uh, you know, on a personnel level, some people come from OSS into the into the new CIA in 1947. All oh, right, I found that quite interesting. You say that the FBI had uh, like went into Central and South America. It's good to hear they were adhering by the Monroe Doctrine as well. Oh, very uh, much so. Yeah. And it's yeah. one of the things, if just as a side note, that causes tension when the CIA is created is that CIA takes away the FBI's foreign intelligence. Uh, remit, and that causes a great deal of tension between the, direct, the long-time director of the the FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and, yeah, I was the, say. <laughs> and, and the CIA. Yeah, I can imagine he he loved losing that power. He did uh, not. Yeah. Yeah. So. In 1945, then, the United States emerges as, as one of the victors in the, in the Second World War, along with sort of great, although diminished powers in the form of Great Britain and France. But most importantly, Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union, um, with whom the US is going to be engaged in a Cold War over the next 40 odd years. And I know this is a huge question in the historiography, and it's perhaps unfair to ask, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Generally speaking, I mean, who starts the Cold War? Oh yeah, no small questions here. Uh, I'm not actually sure that it's particularly useful to think about who starts the Cold War, because that tends to take you down the line of of the question of blame. Uh, I mean, I think you know responsibility for the Cold War, if we can talk about such a thing, lies with many historical actors over a very long period of time. I mean, from at least the Russian Revolution of 1917. I mean, historians have gone back and forth over this from the, the orthodox scholars of the 1950s who blamed Stalin to the revisionists of the 1960s who were primarily came out of the American New Left, uh, who blamed US foreign policy uh, and US kind of foreign economic policy to the post-revisionists of the 1970s, you know, typified by John Lewis Gaddis, one of the leading scholars of the Cold War, and who sought balance uh, of a kind, you know, not finding blame with any, any one power but seeing a kind of a series of you know mistakes and missteps. Uh, well, I mean, what I think is more more useful is to look at 
if you're looking at the way the United States reacts to the onset of the Cold War, is to look at the evolution of US thinking in the immediate aftermath of, of World War II. I mean, especially as we're considering the creation of one of the, I mean, the Cold War's kind of premier intelligence agencies, most famous intelligence agencies alongside the Soviet KGB. It's useful to think about the way that the United States thinking evolves in the immediate aftermath of World War II and why that happens. Okay, and I mean, who are the sort of seminal figures in this discussion? Um, I mean, is, is, is this related to the kind of famous George Kennan long telegram, uh, long telegram that we all kind of teach as one of the three most important documents in the beginning of the Cold War? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, Kennan's long, I mean, his 1946 long telegram that he sends from the, the Moscow embassy uh, to explain for our listeners who might not know, George Kennan is a diplomat in the American State Department. And when he writes the so-called long telegram in February of 1946, he's serving in the American embassy in Moscow. And he is tasked with describing the, the Soviet attitude towards the post-war world. Kennan portrays the USSR as fundamentally expansionist, exploitative of people at home and abroad, and almost antithetical to absolutely everything that the USA is perceived to stand for. Uh, now, because of this, and because of this kind of almost prescription for what America should do and how America should look at the Soviet Union, he, he, come, he goes back to Washington and he eventually takes up the role of the director of the State Department's policy planning staff. You know, an important role in the State Department that deals with making kind of you know, medium and long range plans. Now, he expands on his thesis from the Long Telegram in, uh, in July 1947 in the journal Foreign Affairs, which is one of the premier kind of like periodicals for thinking about foreign relations issues. Uh, it's called the X article because he's not allowed to publish it under his own name. It's written by Mr. X, but it's leaked out and almost everyone knows it's canon. Uh, and it's called... Well, sorry, Republic. sorry, sorry. Can I ask, why is he not allowed to publish it under his own name? Oh, just State Department restrictions, uh, official okay. secrecy. Uh, the, the article's formally titled The Sources of Soviet Conduct. And what this really does is gives a public face and almost kind of the philosophical spine to a policy that President Harry Truman actually outlined about three months earlier uh, in March 1947. And this is the famous Truman Doctrine. Uh, and I mean, the Truman Doctrine comes about because... So Britain is supporting uh, the anti-communist forces in the Greek Civil War, okay, which has been going on you know, during World War II. Britain is broke at this point. It says, we can't afford to support the Greeks. We are having to get out. So the US steps into the breach. March 12, 1947, Truman outlines what becomes called the Truman Doctrine. Now, he couches this in terms of economic and moral support for Greece, Greece and Turkey. In reality, I'd argue it's a much more expansive statement that the US would actively support anti-communist activity around the world. I mean, even though, interestingly, Truman does not specifically reference communism, it instead talks about totalitarian regimes that the United States will stand up to. But by this stage, everyone knows what's, what's going on. And this lays the foundations for what would become called the policy of containment. So Kennan sets up these ideas. He gives an idea of what the Soviet Union is like, an inaccurate vision of what the Soviet Union is like, to be fair. Uh, 
sets up the policy of containment with the Truman Doctrine, hemming the Soviets into their own sphere of influence, preventing further encroachment into the wider world through economic and political means. Is that beyond Eastern Europe, basically? That's where they're to, to, to sort of hem them in? Yeah, basically hemming them into where the Red Army has got to during World War II, uh, mm-hmm. into, into Eastern Europe, not allowing them to go any further and preventing the further spread of yeah, communism into, into other countries, particularly in the, kind of, the devastated war-torn countries of Europe. And containment, containment is essentially set up initially as, a, as an economic and, and diplomatic form of containment. Mm. Okay, so you mentioned President Harry Truman there. Um, and Truman's one of these presidents that has a really kind of interesting hist- historical legacy. Um, I mean, he gets his second term with a surprise win in 1948 and then is... is one of the most unpopular presidents, I think he's down in the 20 percentiles when he, when he eventually relinquishes the presidency. Um, and the sort of uncharitable view of, of Harry Truman is a, an ill-informed hick um, from Missouri. But historians have started to characterize him as an underestimated president who, who, you know, was actually a wee bit more on the ball than we might think. I mean, do you think he earns this revisionist view? I think he does, uh, because Truman, I mean, Truman was a fish out of water when he came into the presidency. He hadn't been vice president for very long. Franklin D. Roosevelt did not, he wasn't privy to any of the kind of critical national security information, any of the decision making about, you know, about the the deals that Franklin Roosevelt had set up with, with Stalin and everything. He didn't know about the atomic bomb. He's he kind of, he's in the dark. And then suddenly he becomes president and he's this, you know, a relatively minor politician from Missouri. I mean, he's he's had some responsible positions and everything, and he's you know he's got a bit of standing. But in the big scheme of things, you know, he's no he's no Stimson. You know, he's not one of these major giant figures of American politics that've been around for two or three decades. And he kind of when he becomes president, his first you know press conference, and I you know paraphrase here, but he says to the assembled journalist, "If you prayed for anyone, boys, pray for me now." Mm. Uh, but Truman grows into the presidency; he becomes much more confident. I mean, he's sometimes short-tempered and lacks the intelligence and education and finesse to deal with certain matters. Sorry, sir, can I just pick you up there? You said yeah. short-tempered. Would you like to tell the audience the this, this story of when uh, when Truman gets somewhat upset by a review? Upset by Is this the review of his daughter's singing performance? Yes, yes, which is my favourite Truman story. Well, yeah, because his daughter was a... She was a, wanted to be a singer and she was terrible. Uh, yeah. She really was. And there was a very, very unkind review in the New, New York, York Times. Times. I think it was the yeah. New York Times. It was the New York Times. And Harry Truman, the president, <laughs> writes the most vitriolic letter to the critic, castigating him in no uncertain terms for having dared to criticize his darling daughter. Uh, and he would, he's, but he's a man kind of like, you know, weighed down by a sense of his own inadequacy. If you read his his diaries and his private papers. He's a deeply conflicted man. I mean, and he, he gets angry at times. He does it during press conferences in the Korean War when, I mean, the famous one in kind of like late 1950 where he said, you know, we, a journalist asked him something along the lines of, you know, uh, what are we, how are we going to win the Korean War? And he says, we'll, we'll use all the weapons at our disposal. Uh, and uh, they're all under consideration is, is one of the things he says. And the journalist comes back to him and goes, do you mean the A-bomb? 
And Truman's like, yeah, all weapons are under consideration. Like, that's it. I'm not answering. These. And he kind of like, he gets really angry with the journalist and all that. Next day, headlines, Truman contemplates use of Abel in Korea. <laughs> Clement Attlee over in London, the British Prime Minister at the time, goes absolutely mad, gets on the first plane he can over to Washington to try and you know stop Truman. Truman wasn't intending to use the A-bomb, but... Oh. Gets the first plane across the Washington in the hope of persuading the American president not to start using the atomic bomb in the Korean War. Uh, so he can be a bit, he can be a bit volatile, uh, but he did prove to be in many areas a steadfast leader in a time of emerging crisis. And I think his creation of the modern American national security apparatus in 1947 is a solid example of that. And I think what brings him down at the end of his presidency is the toxic effect of the essentially unwinnable stalemate in the Korean War and the toxic effect of domestic anti-communism and the way that is that the way that's contributing to the way his presidency is seen through the so-called loss of China the advent of the Soviet A-bomb and just all these accusations that are swirling around his presidency yeah no it's brilliant um so why does Truman uh, established the CIA in 1947. I mean, what is the what is the kind of solid background there? Okay, so the American military and national security system is pretty cumbersome, outdated, unsuited for purpose. I mean, especially in this new atomic age, the new age of atomic warfare. So moves began to try and kind of revitalize this national security bureaucracy and, and create new institutions that are better suited to the this emerging post-World War II world. So the 1947 National Security Act creates a kind of combined command staff for all of the military in the form of the Joint Chiefs of Staff reporting into the presidency. It creates an independent United States Air Force because air power had been part of the army up until that point. It creates the new Department of Defense, getting rid of the old Department of War. It creates the National Security Council, which is the advisory body that is answerable only to the presidency, not to Congress. Uh, and it also creates the Central Intelligence Agency as a foreign intelligence, uh, counterintelligence and covert operations uh, organization. I mean, so in one fell swoop, we can see the creation of a new, org- new organizations to help the United States fight its wars, monitor its enemies and more effectively plan foreign policy. Oh, that that sounds like a pretty big deal. Uh, that, that does sort of sound like the mo- the modern state being created there in many ways. So, as I understand it, Italy of all places becomes the first major testing ground for the CIA's effectiveness, and the CIA prevail partly because they have Jesus on their side. Um, I'm so so I'm given to understand. I mean, can you tell us that story? They do indeed have Jesus on their side. Uh, I think the story of CIA prevailing in the Italian uh, in, in Italian politics in 1947-48. There's actually a lot of mythology surrounding that. I think, as I'll hopefully explain, the CIA wasn't as critical in the outcome of the 1948 Italian general election as many people believe. So, I mean, the CIA is just being created. And also at the same time, the USSR under Stalin has created the, the common form in order to propagandize for communism. Uh, so this, pre- this presents a kind of a challenge to containment based on kind of words and images, not just kind of cloaks and daggers and secret operations and all that kind of thing. So in December, uh, there's a National Security Council report called NSC4A. 
which recommends giving official sanction to covert CIA psychological warfare operations to support containment. Now, George Kennan's involved in all of this stuff. Uh, and he later explains one of the reasons for giving the CIA this responsibly, responsibility lay in Europe, and in particular considering Italy uh, as a kind of an area where communism might be expanding. So, because post-war Italy, I mean, really was a political battleground. You had Italian communists and socialists. Now, they were, they'd been really buoyed up by their kind of, you know, their ideologies, I mean, really critical contribution to de- defeating fascism in World War II. And they were on the rise in Italy. And, and back in Washington, they see the Italian peninsula as strategically critical because it faces across to the Balkans, communist-dominated Balkans, which may be a target for subversion. And we'll come back to them later in the podcast. I mean, at this stage, obviously, Italy is not the only concern in Europe. France also had a very strong communist party, and they had formed the backbone of resistance to German occupation. So, I mean, George, there's a good quote from, uh, an slightly extended quote from George Kennan. uh, And he comments that, quote, We were alarmed at the inroads of Russian influence in Western Europe beyond the point where the Russian troops had reached. And we were alarmed particularly over the situation in France and Italy. We felt that the communists were using the very extensive funds that they then had in hand to gain control of key elements of life in France and Italy, particularly the publishing companies, the press, the labour unions, student organisations, women's organisations, and all sorts of organisations of that sort, to gain control of them and use them as front organisations. So, so, a- so essentially, you've got the big problem there. Um, so, what is, what is it that the CIA sets about doing uh, to solve the problem? So... They don't want the, the communists to win the Italian election. So the answer, I mean, the answer is, let's unleash a CIA covert political and media warfare operation. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> and it's actually the, the CIA's first major covert mobilization. And on the ground, the head of the operation is going to be a CIA officer named James Jesus Angleton. And this is where Jesus comes into <laughs> it. Uh, now, he would go on after this to become a leg- absolutely legendary head of CIA counterintelligence. He was acquainted with the member of the Cambridge Five, the senior British uh, intelligence officer, Kim Philby, uh, who betrayed so many people and you know, was a traitor <laughs> to his country, all that kind of thing. Angleton was friends, friends of a sort with Philby. He'd worked, he'd worked with him and knew him and everything. And, Angleton's later experiences with Philby would go on to form his vision. He became utterly paranoid, an utterly paranoid head of CIA counterintelligence. But prior to this, he's in charge of this operation in in Italy. So what they do is, I mean, the CIA money kind of floods in to support uh, Alcide de Gasperi's uh, centre-right Christian Democrat party, who are kind of like standing against the communists and socialists. Uh, And it was, I mean, it's really strategically critical for American interests here that in the April 48 election in Italy, that the Christian Democrats win. Uh, so there's lots of monetary support for the election campaign, black propaganda, the distribution of stuff like foodstuffs to Christian Democrat supporters. And the CIA does their best to ensure that De Gasperi's outfit is going to win the day. And lo and behold, the Christian Democrats win the election. Uh, and this kind of ensures that Italy remains aligned towards Washington, and not towards Moscow. But the legend of like this critical CIA involvement in all of this is actually just that. It's a bit of a legend. Because 
they might not have made a critical contribution to it. Other U.S. government organs, particularly the State Department and the U.S. Embassy in Rome, were involved way, way earlier. And CIA is actually a bit of a latecomer to this entire Italian political melee. And the the role of James Jesus Angleton in it is more than a little obscure. And also, I think this fixation on covert political warfare, because it's all very glamorous and all that kind of thing, obscures the fact of Italian agency in the election. And there's a very distinct possibility that a communist government was not actually going to emerge. And this actually also has a kind of creates a legend on the left of Italian politics, which lasts many decades, you know, a legend of critical CIA interference. And, it, and it, that's a powerful narrative that still exists up to the present day in some sectors of Italian politics. Okay, so whether the whether the role of the CIA was crucial or not, I mean, does the does the sort of narrative that comes out of the Italian affair um, does that have an effect on things going on back in the US? Is there some ramifications back home? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, because the Italian operation was such a ad hoc, improvised, almost last minute kind of thing, it really provokes this debate. Uh, in Washington, and, and persuades, most importantly, really influential figures inside and outside of government. I mean, such as George Kennan, who we've talked about already, the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, uh, and Alan Dulles, who would become a director of central intelligence in the future. They were persuaded a much more cohesive, coherent approach to covert operations is required. Now, actually, Truman was a bit reticent about all this. He wasn't entirely you know, keen at this stage on covert operations. He always claimed that covert operations didn't really start on his watch. That's not true. But he was still slightly reticent about it. And they also had to kind of work against the, the, I mean, by all accounts, really rather genial, but very much politically marginalized uh, director of central intelligence, Admiral Roscoe Hillencoater. Great name. Yep. But eventually, I mean, I think the, the experience with Italy, it becomes this, Springboard. The belief that the CIA contributed critically, it doesn't matter whether they did or they didn't, the belief that the CIA contributed critically, this kind of creates a springboard for much more expansive operations in the future. And But there's all sorts of other stuff going on. I mean, this is not just being shaped by what happens in, in Europe, because you know as the Italian election is, is going on, there's stuff happening elsewhere in the world that also has a you know, a major influence on shaping these kind of covert operations and the capabilities that the CIA has. Okay, and just before uh, we go on, I mean, covert operation is a wee bit of a jargony term. What do you mean when you say covert operation? Covert operations of uh, undercover activity, uh, cl- undercover clandestine activity to try and uh, you know, manipulate the workings of an enemy state or a friendly state actually, for, yeah. for those purposes. So that can be anything from uh, political assassination, uh, infiltration, psychological warfare, so-called black propaganda, uh, using money to try and influence people, uh, all that kind of thing. All just basically undercover operations in in a state that is not your own. Okay. But given, given how much the Italians felt about the US influence, clearly they weren't covert enough. Yeah, Why? Quite, quite right, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So... Um, Moving, moving back to, I mean, I mentioned the Monroe Doctrine earlier and the America's continued in, interest in South America. The, the sort of nascent CIA was, was, was quickly brought back down to earth with, with a failure in its own backyard, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's the, one of the first kind of moments where the CIA gets kind of like had up for its failure to predict something that they 
you know, they really, it was difficult for them to actually actually predict. So, I mean, in April 1948, just as the Italian election is taking place, on the other side of the world in Bogota in Colombia, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State George C. Marshall, one of the you know the great American you know military leaders of World War II, he's chairing the the Conference of American States, uh, which is a, a conference of the various you know Central and South American uh, countries. Now, this meeting gives birth to the Organization of American States, uh, and you know it kind of it, it does contribute to covert action powers for the CIA because. So on April 9th, they're having their big meeting. There's this big talking shop going on, blah, 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 blah. And it's engulfed by this mass rioting in Bogota because there had been an assassination of the uh, this liberal politician and presidential candidate, candidate called uh, Jorge Gaitan. And many protesters were apparently, allegedly seen wearing red star armbands and flying hammer and sickle flags and all that kind of communist iconography. And after things calmed down, it's actually a fairly horrible event. Somewhere between a few hundred and a couple of thousand Colombians are dead of injuries sustained in this unrest. But back in Washington, because the Cold War is starting to loom over everything, there's all these congressmen and commentators in the media. They see Soviet meddling in events. They don't see Colombian agency here. They see this is the hand of the Soviets getting involved in America's backyard. And, you know, this is, you know, ever since the Monroe Doctrine's proclamation in 1823, when James Monroe said it in the State of the Union address, this has been America's backyard. And the CIA was blamed for failing to predict what was referred to by some people as, without any sense of irony or thinking that we're being a bit hyperbolic, uh, a South American Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Uh, and so poor old genial Vosco Hillencoater uh, is kind of forced to defend his agency in front of Congress and the press and all that kind of thing. So so while all this is going on in Washington, and this is a bit of an extended story about how Bogota leads to all this stuff, uh, there's kind of fears of communist encroachment in South America. The, the conference that, that Marshall is at in Bogota, after all this rioting, agrees to the Organization of American States Charter. Now, there's gaping loopholes in the wording of this charter. And essentially, it doesn't explicitly say this, but the loopholes allow the US to intervene in South American countries to prevent them going communist. So, you know, Washington realized it couldn't just march into, for example, Brazil or Colombia and start sorting things out if communists got in charge. I mean, logically, this means that it's got to be covert got to be clandestine and this means you need to set up an agency to carry out this work or subordinate it to an organization that's already doing covert work uh i mean and all this is actually linked to i mean the need for clandestine capabilities is reinforced by more events in europe like that happened a couple of months earlier you know because czechoslovakia the last non-communist state in eastern europe had finally succumbed to a pro-Soviet communist coup. So it looks from what's going on with like Czechoslovakia and Europe and what's happening and what happens in Bogota and the perception of CIA failure and the need to be able to intervene in situations like that is they see a need for expanded covert action capabilities. Okay, I mean, that all makes sense. I mean, I was just wondering, I guess one of the concerns you might have if you are a president or a Congress and you're setting up a covert operations like system maybe you know an institution is that it could then 
act in ways that you wouldn't particularly want it to and perhaps become unwieldy. I mean, how much oversight do government agencies have over the CIA? Did they think these problems through? Well, I mean, this is the, I mean, the persistent question with intelligence agencies is the level of official oversight that they should have. Uh, I mean, this was a debate within the executive, within, within Truman's administration about how much oversight the CIA should have. So, I mean, Congress was also interested in this. So, you know, there was a representative in the, the House of Representatives, Edward Devitt. Um, and he suggests a congressional committee uh, to oversee the activities of the of the CIA, patterned after the already existing Joint Committee on on Atomic Energy, uh, and it's going to you know apparently going to monitor the CIA and take account of its activities and all that kind of thing. Now, I mean, Devitt was a former intelligence officer and a decorated veteran of World War Two. The proposal is still defeated. So, despite that experience, his knowledge of the game. It's defeated by a Congress that was actually showing little interest in oversight of the CIA and a government that, to be quite frank, had no particular desire to allow oversight of of its covert operations and intelligence operations at this moment in time. I mean, what what kind of what what, what context is given the is given the United States the the, the sort of the willingness to pay footloose and fancy free with a. Uh, with, you know, oversight on, on covert operations. At, at that point in time, they're more interested. I mean, this is the time of the, you know, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, the ramping up of the second Red Scare. Or like, they're more interested in finding, like, domestic enemies and Reds under the beds and kind of communists in Hollywood and all that kind of thing. Congress is much more interested in that stuff rather than, yeah, yeah, these are, these are the good guys. They're fighting the good fight. Look, let them go and do their thing. We'll find these dastardly reds uh you know and spies in america because there's been sort of like these you know spy scandals stuff's come out about you know soviet penetration of the world war ii manhattan project the atomic bomb you know there's stuff coming out that you know the soviet spy elizabeth bentley has kind of blown the gaff on kgb operations igor gazenko uh, a soviet cipher clerk who was at the embassy in ottawa and canada defected and blew the lid off loads of stuff and everything so they're much more concerned about you know soviet spying than their own spying and covert operations. Yeah, I mean, I was just wondering, how much is uh, the willingness of Truman to set up the CIA and the National Security Act and everything a reaction to sort of the, the, the constant claims that, Demo- that uh, the sort of the Truman administration was infiltrated with, well, with Soviets? I mean, absolutely. I mean, these kind of, I mean, the real kind of like, the real claims actually, you know, that we see from the, especially the McCarthy era, come slightly slightly after the National Security Act is kind of implemented and all that kind of thing. It's, I mean, Truman really, really, really comes under attack uh, after the kind of the loss of China and the revelation of a Soviet atomic bomb and all that kind of thing. But, you know, I mean, you're, you're right. The, the, from, from day one, Truman's under attack for perhaps being kind of, you know, soft on communists and, and all that kind of thing. So there is a certain element of that there that you've got to show us an amount of toughness towards the, you know, we can't show weakness in front of the Russians. Uh, and all that kind of business. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. Okay, so, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the, 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 so, the supposed loss of China. I mean, what were the implications for the CIA um, following what were viewed as the two greatest failures of the of the Truman administration, you know, the, the Soviet successful test of a nuclear bomb and, and the quote-unquote loss of China to the communists? So I think they're less important than stuff that we've just talked about. We actually have to kind of, like, kind of just remain in 1948 
for just now, I think, because because it's the aftermath of Czechoslovakia and Bogota, Bogota, where you see the the nature of covert operations that are being conducted by the CIA and who's responsible for them changing slightly. Because a document, so I talked a bit before about NSC four A. The document essentially sets all of this up. That's superseded by this other report called NSC ten slash two. Sorry for doing all these. It sounds like this acronym soup. It's, it's, I was going to say it's like trying to teach the New Deal. We should, <laughs> we should, we, we'll post links to these documents uh, on when we put the, put the podcast up. Uh, so, it, I mean, it really becomes this guiding, NSC 10 slash 2 becomes this guiding document for covert action. And it states that in the interests of world peace and U.S. national security, they should establish this kind of semi-autonomous covert operations branch and what is rather euphemistically called the Office of Policy Coordination. It's one of these bland, meaningless kind of names that covers up a whole load of sins. Uh, so this is called the OPC. And so the OPC eventually gets fully absorbed into the CIA in 1952. But in its very early stages, it's got a very complex set of interlocking relationships with the CIA, the State Department, and the Department of Defense. Now, while OPC is being set up, and they become the real hub of covert operations, Stalin is continuing his blockade of Berlin. You know, the famous Berlin airlift and all that kind of where the entire city is supplied for practically a year purely by air to try and force the Western allies out of Berlin. Now, this, I mean, presents an image of a very expansionist, aggressive USSR and significantly influenced the attitudes towards covert ops. So the OPC is given, and, and I quote, this is the powers that it's given, any covert activities related to propaganda, economic warfare, preventative direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition and evacuation measures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas and refugee liberation groups, and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. So there's actually, you asked earlier about a definition of covert operations. That's a pretty good description, (laughs) description of it right there. I mean, but there's, I mean, all these, during the drafting of all this, there's all these disputes emerge between the CIA and like George Kennan's policy planning staff over who gets to have authority over what was euphemistically referred to as political warfare. I mean, Kennan says, covert operations abroad, they're a foreign policy issue, the State Department should have the final say. So it all becomes really complex because the CIA ends up having this fiscal responsibility for the OPC but who's actually de facto responsible for it becomes like incredibly blurred. I mean, Roscoe Hillencoater is essentially taken out of the loop. Uh, he becomes yesterday's man. And there's this real, you asked about oversight earlier, there's a real dramatic weakening of oversight and accountability related to this political and, and covert warfare. And this becomes coupled to this lack of strategic direction from the very top of the, of the executive. And it creates a, a vacuum where you can get these covert, real enthusiasts for covert ops, like the first head of the OPC, a guy called Frank Wisner, uh, fills with potentially really very dangerous covert operations behind the Iron Curtain. Okay, and I mean, the around about this time as well, you've got, you know, Congress sets up some things that lead to some of the more well-known of the, the CIA's operations, like Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Um, if you could maybe speak a wee bit about them. Yeah, because I mean, roughly the same time, uh, you've got the 
the Congressional Central Intelligence Act of 1949. Uh, and that kind of massively strengthens and most importantly funds covert uh, you know, operations. Uh, I mean, because the, I mean, the Central Intelligence Act, it's interesting in that it gives specific authority for the use of what are called unvouchered funds. Uh, so basically black money, uh, you know, secret funds uh, for covert operations. And these make covert actions so much easier. So they, as you say, the CIA goes on to set up like Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty that are broadcasting propaganda into Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And it also allows the agency to gain real significant logistical assets that are going to be very important for future operations. So they maintain their own air transport wing uh, named Civil Air Transport. They do love their bland euphemisms for these things. But Civil Air Transport, or called CAT for short, which comes to be joined by other covert air operations later, such as the famous Air America, which operates in, uh, in Vietnam. So... I mean, there's, there's all this kind of blame and counter-blame after Bogota, and there's a fear of communist encroachment, the seeming success of the Italian operations, the need to protect US national security. All of this leads to these new covert capabilities and the money to do it. And you know, this is all allied to concerns about communist encroachment in Europe, you know, this desire to disrupt the politics and the, the communist sphere behind the Iron Curtain. You get new, well-funded, really well-resourced, well-staffed covert operations units like the OPC, acting without you know any kind of appropriate democratic over- oversight. Uh, but, but, I mean, really in some ways, the, I mean, the outcome of this is the OPC, and this is kind of a defeat for the CIA in completely controlling Cold War covert action. Although it's interesting to note, one thing that's worth mentioning, the new scale of covert operations is, is incredible. So, you know, OPC in 1949, just after it's created, has 302 members of staff, and $4.7 million in funds. By 1952, when it's finally brought into the fold of the CIA completely, it's got 2,800 members of staff and has $82 million in funding. So this shows the the importance that was placed on covert operations. So Malcolm, at this stage, I have a really, probably a very silly question for you. I just want to ask, thankfully for you, it'll be probably a very short answer. So, you know, in, in the United Kingdom that, you know, the whole kind of thing about MI5 is that you don't acknowledge the existence of MI5. Uh, does the United States have a similar approach or are they more than happy for people to know there's the CIA? Well, I mean, the CIA, and it's a, when it's first created, there's a big hoopla surrounding it. Uh, and they're very... Ticker very, tape parade. <laughs> no, not quite a ticker tape parade, but there's a bit of hoopla surrounding it. But thereafter, they become a bit more reticent about... Uh, about talking about it and you know the CIA over the the decades kind of it fight it essentially fights a war for its own official version of what it is you have all these memoirists and you know people coming out and writing books about the CIA and they 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 end up having this kind of like this conflict between between what's the official version of the CIA and what's the public version of the CIA and all these kind of things uh, and you have people like Alan Dulles who becomes director of central intelligence uh, in the 1950s, who very much positions himself as the the sole kind of like figurehead of the CIA. He is the CIA to the public. He deals with the public. He deals with the press. He is what the CIA is to the public. Uh, whereas in, in Britain, you never have the heads of the, the secret intelligence service or the security service appearing in public or having their names said in public. Oh, I, thought all. Was, I thought it was the Queen. No. <laughs> but anyway... Um, 
So earlier, you uh, you artfully dodged my question, uh, so I'm going to get you back to it. Um, what are the implications of the, C- the CIA following the Soviets' test of the nuclear bomb and uh, the quote-unquote loss of China? Well, I mean, kind of at that point, it looks as if America's losing the kind of the nascent Cold War. I mean, the Soviets are getting one over on them every. Well, the communists, sorry, not just the Soviets, uh, are getting one over on, on them every opportunity. And I think because of this, you get Frank Wisner, the OPC, the CIA. I mean, they're trying to. They're finding themselves attempting to do, like do something new and different. So they've done stuff like supporting Italian Christian Democrats, all these kind of things. Now they're going to go for something that we really associate with kind of modern you know, American foreign policy in terms of regime change, what we now call regime change. Because, I mean, you're right, 1949 is this, is this critical year. August, the Soviets detonate the first atomic bomb. A month later, the communists achieve victory in the Chinese Civil War. I mean, so what this leads to is kind of, you know, communist Yugoslavia under Tito has split from the mainstream of, of, of communism, split from Stalin. And so the Balkans are seen as this arena for, for making inroads into the East, into the communist sphere. Now, with all these new financial resources and covert ops resources, you end up getting a, an operation is trying to strike back and destabilize part of the, the communist sphere. And this is done in cooperation between the OPC and Britain's secret intelligence service, more commonly known as MI6. Now, this is known to the British as Operation Valuable and to the Americans under the codename BG Fiend. BG was just the, a, a two-letter two code for the country it takes place in. So, I mean, America having a really kicked off containment by getting Britain out of their kind of like being stuck in supporting the, the anti-communists in Greece, the United States decides it's going to deploy these covert operations capabilities to try and bring down the Albanian communist regime of Enver Hoxha. Now, they hope that although Albania is a fairly small fry in the communist world, in fact, it's pretty much the smallest of small fry in the communist world. <laughs> uh, it's hoped that this actually would be a this would kick Stalin in the Balkans, and hopefully, <laughs> you know, ign- oh, it's terrible uh, ignite this fire that's going to spread throughout communist Europe. So, what they end up doing is they have these British trained personnel who are mostly anti-communist expatriate Albanians and a smattering of British agents, and they run this operation called BG Fiend from Malta. Uh, and there was a great comment from like Frank Wisner, the head of OPC, the kind of the big covert operations guy. And he later commented that whenever we want to subvert any place, we find that the British own an island within easy reach. <laughs> and, uh, so it says something about kind of like the, the continuing extent of the British Empire at this, this point in time. Mm-hmm. So from October 1949, so just after the Soviet atomic bomb test and the loss of China, agents get airdropped and landed by boat at night with radios, weapons, instructions, propaganda materials to link up with like the domestic resistance to Enver Hodges regime in Albania in the hope that it'll destabilize it, bring it down and start a chain reaction in the communist world. Uh, doesn't work. Uh, in actual fact, it's a disaster uh, because the agents are captured and killed. Uh, so there's, I mean, lax security procedures. Almost everyone in Malta knows this is going on. Uh using the same landing sites as those that were used to infiltrate anti-fascist agents during the World War II was another. Uh, Hodja had a quite efficient counterintelligence secret police. And also the Soviet intelligence services knew about it before the operation even started. 
because the CIA OPC SIS liaison officer for the operation was none other than double agent Kim Philby, uh, who fed everything about the operation allegedly back to the Soviet Union, to Soviet handlers. So it was a failure. The operation was it was a failure. Remarkably, though, seemingly against logic, they continue sending agents into Albania until 1951, which makes literally no sense. But anyway, so I mean, BG Fiend is this is this covert operations failure. Importantly, though, kind of Truman always denied that covert operations really kicked off on his watch. Uh, I, this BG Fiend gives lie to that. They did this stuff did start happening uh, on Truman's watch. You know, that the CIA obsession with regime change only really starts after Truman leaves the White House. I mean, he was always concerned about this tension between, you know, democracy and covert action. You know, is it right for a democratic state to undertake this kind of work? Uh, and kind of the, the lack of oversight in the CIA and OPC. But I mean, the thing is, this very lack of oversight built into the structures allowed kind of like the likes of Frank Wisner to really set the, set the tone. I mean, there's the the brilliant historian of, of American intelligence, Roger Jeffries-Jones, I mean, he points out uh, that Albania persuaded US policymakers that they could determine the shape of world politics by means of the so-called hidden hand of covert operations. And then not long after, in, in June 1950, you have the Korean War's outbreak and you know the acceptance of the recommendations of the famous NSC 68 report, I mean, covert action becomes this fundamental part of US containment policy against communism. Okay, brilliant. So, I mean, by the time we end this podcast, uh, just before the outbreak of the Korean War, how closely does the CIA then resemble the modern CIA? You know, are, it, are the basic principles and goals the same, or is is this is agency evolved out of all recognition? No, I think I mean it's fair to say it kind of it sets sets the tone and puts in place like structures and funding and organisations that are going to be reasonably solid for the next couple of decades at least. I mean, it's important to kind of emphasise. I mean, twenty fifth June nineteen fifty, when the North Korean forces come across the thirty eighth parallel into South Korea, trying to forcibly reunify the country by military means. In Washington, this is, for for Washington, this is a crystal clear example of the threat to world peace that international communism supposedly poses. And it really persuades Truman to take seriously the recommendations from National Security Council Report 68, NSC 68, uh, which is, this full name is United States Objectives and Programs for National Security. Uh, I mean, NSC 68 is an endlessly fascinating document. It's going to be prescriptive, hysterical, philosophical. They're kind of attempting to square the circle of the strategy of containment that had evolved since Kennan's long telegram. Uh, so, I mean, as the Korean, when the Korean War breaks out, containment goes from being this primarily economic and diplomatic thing to being a military containment strategy. So, I mean, by, by the time we get to early July 1950, the Cold War, I think, is solidified into the form that's going to define the next 39 years. The atom bomb, societies mobilized against ideological enemies, and vast, I mean, these vast secret intelligence organizations operating on and quite often beyond the fringes of like politics and legality and morality. And to answer your question about the CIA in a fairly long-winded fashion, I think the CIA contributes another dimension to containment. 
you know, covert operations and psychological warfare. Because NSC 68 doesn't just recommend vastly increased military spending. They all, it also foregrounds covert action as a vital component in the fight against the USSR. So I'd say by Korea, I think where we're going to end this, this podcast, like the wider Cold War itself, actually, US covert action has assumed this shape and purpose. If not quite kind of a wholesale organizational stability that it's going to retain for at least the next 25 years. Okay. So then to round off my final question for you is what are the kind of key takeaways um, that scholars should take from the, the origins of the, the CIA is and its covert operations program? I mean, what sort of lessons does it, does it teach us um, uh, as Truman and the rest of, you know, Congress and the rest of government set about trying to create the, this, uh, this covert state, if you will. I mean, I think there's, I mean, broadly, I mean, there's three points to bear in mind from all of this. So, I mean, the CIA and the OPC become a fundamental part and a vital part of the Cold War United States efforts to try and contain communism. So the policy of containment has this vital covert operations element. I think, secondly, that with this expansion of covert sometimes quasi-legal, sometimes illegal, sometimes at odds with the, you know, the tenets of American democracy and liberty and freedom and all these kind of ideas, that there's a desire to avoid oversight. From the get-go, they're trying to avoid congressional oversight or any kind of oversight. And this is the early Cold War period, this period from kind of mid-1947 up until mid-1950, it really sets the tone and puts in place like the resources and capabilities for future covert action, at least up until the mid-1970s when the CIA is disgraced and covered by, you know, is covered with less than glory. It's uh, investigated by the church committee and, and all these kind of things, which we're going to cover in a future podcast. For the next, you know, 20, 25 years, the CIA's covert operations resources and capabilities are put in place. Excellent. Uh, and I look forward to, to finding how that, that, that does shake out in the church committee in the 1970s, uh, mm. which you've already hinted at for a future podcast. Yes, indeed. So uh, that's us for uh, this week, or this month indeed. We'll be back in December when we're joined by our good friend, uh, Frances Houghton, and she's going to give us uh, a sort of perspective on how Britain, uh, or sorry, British and American troops fared together um, as one during the Second World War. Um, and we can maybe chat about many of the different perceptions that have been held since then. Uh, so thanks again, um, Malcolm. I'm delighted to be given the opportunity to uh, to rattle on about a subject of kind of pet interest for me. Uh, indeed, indeed. I was delighted to listen to it. And thank you, as always, uh, to, to those of you that have chosen to listen to the podcast. And we shall see you again next month. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. not the first he's not the first but he's the second best secret agent in the whole wide world not number one but not the worst he's just the second best secret agent in the whole wide world he's every bit as good as what's his name 
with a dame, any dame. And all those bullet holes are in his vest. To prove you work a little harder when you're second best. Give him his due. He's number two. Right in there doing his act, despite the fact he shot clear through. Not the tenth, ninth, eighth, seventh, sixth, fifth, fourth, third, or first. When the challenge is hurled, but the second best secret agent in the whole wide blooming world. Not the tenth, ninth, eighth, seventh, sixth, fifth, fourth, third, or first. When the challenge is hurled, but the second best secret agent in the whole wide. I think. <laughs>